0: welcome to mysteries monsters and mayhem i'm shannon lawrence and i'm mb partlow quick content warning before we get started this podcast may
1: contain language and disturbing content so enter at your own risk and we are here hello hello (laughs) we are here today we have a guest so uh, mark go ahead and introduce yourself
2: Well, hey, I am so excited to be here. My name is Mark Leslie, and I am a Canadian author of speculative fiction and true ghost stories, or for the non-believers, tales told as true. I've got about half a dozen books of true ghost stories from different locales, uh, as well as urban fantasy, Canadian werewolf series, probably um, uh, the the most popular one. But I kind of write all across the map, but I'm constantly returning to those dark and eerie shadows.
1: So I, I've been having fun seeing the pictures come in. Tell us about, is it, is it Canadian Mounted? My uh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> The Canadian Mounted is not a pornographic novel, although <laughs> in the script for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles by John Hughes, it reads that Del Griffith, John Candy's character, is reading a pornographic novel in the airport at LaGuardia when they first meet. And that's what he's reading when he says, I know you, don't I? I'm usually pretty good with names, but I'll be darned if I haven't forgotten yours. Uh, and that's the, that's when they first meet officially. And, and so The Canadian Mounted was a real book published in the 80s. And I saw it in the movie, and I'm a big book nerd, so I was very intrigued by it. Then I saw it in Deadpool 2. <laughs> and I thought, what's going on with this? Is this like the Wilhelm scream? You know, the the one that the movie producers always use. Like there's this newspaper that appears in all this movie or the, the sound effects. And I w- wondered about that. And then I realized, I learned, it had been a real book. It had gone out of print. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool on the 35th anniversary of my one of my favorite films to do a book of trivia about planes, trains, and automobiles and call it The Canadian Mounted just to give people, just to give them a prop they can hold up and read when they're in an airport.
1: And it's perfect because everybody's sending you in your pictures.
2: I know. I I marketing.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, exactly. I guess that I should start telling people I have a story, and it's about a creature in a toilet, basically a rest stop toilet. (laughs) I still get pictures of porta potties and stuff from people, so I guess I should start asking them to tag me. That's
0: for free.
2: Yeah, come up up with a hashtag.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, a little disturbing, but quite fun. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and I probably send half of them. So, <laughs> so every, I get a lot. Every beer festival I go to, if there's a porta potty, I take a picture and write. If you don't hear back from me in ten minutes, please alert someone.
2: <laughs> you yeah. you got to be safe,
0: you know, <laughs> right?
1: I guess they're they're both entertaining. I guess so. <laughs> you have uh, tell me about writing that ghost story. Books. How did you go and research those? And
2: so it's interesting. Um, the stories I, I was I wanted to share with you are a different way of getting them. But I, I usually set out to do research in advance. I will go on local ghost walks when I whenever I travel. I love that. Great way to learn about uh, a city. I buy a lot of books when I travel. I love going into bookstores, local bookstores. The first thing I look for is local ghost stories, and I and I just buy them up. It's like, oh, this is good. I'm gonna take it home. And and I and I have probably a hundred that I haven't read yet, but they're there in case I need to do research. And and I have um subscription to newspapers.com, mm-hmm. which has archives of newspapers, especially you know, between like 1870 and 1930, there were just ghost stories printed in the newspaper. It was like very common, and so there's a lot of great old ghost stories you can research. So magazines, newspapers. Uh, I mean, come on, going into the library and and, and going on the microfiche <laughs> and, and getting printouts of, of old newspaper. And then, and honestly, librarians are some of the best resources going to a local library and say, hey, I'm researching this town, this city. And sometimes when you get the right research librarian, they just, their eyes light up and they're like, oh my God, we're going to have a good time this afternoon. You know, I'm going <laughs> spend hours there. And, and oftentimes you can't take things out of the archives, but they'll, they'll allow you to you know, pay for photocopies and stuff, and yeah. and 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 so that's how most of the research is done. Some of it is interviews. I have a form on my website where I where I solicit people to fill out details, and then I can get their permission to potentially call them or email them back and forth or do a video chat so I can kind of get more details from them. And every once in a while, they happen upon me at book signings where I'm signing, you know, one of my ghost story books, and someone you know waits to the end and then kind of whispers conspiratorially in my ear.
0: I have a ghost story to tell you. (laughs) That's
1: fun because people ask, you know, I'm sure you get this too. Why did you start writing dark, you know, horror? Why, (laughs) what happened in your life that made you do this? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. It's not that dramatic, but, (laughs) but the first thing i really got into was local ghost stories when I was living in Maryland and there's, you know, rich history over on the East coast where we had stuff first, but And of course, there were a ton about the White House and all that stuff. That's something I'd Mm -hmm. love to revisit at some point. But that's what really got me started, and then expand into all the fiction. And but I would go to the library and spend Mm -hmm. hours finding those books and just reading them there. And oh yeah, loved it. So yeah, I love that aspect. All right, so we should probably go ahead and get started. If you're thinking of starting a podcast or even just starting to research it, Buzzsprout is your go-to source for information and hosting. They have tons of videos and write-ups on Everything you need to know about recording and distributing a podcast, and they even provide easy ways to get analytics on how your podcast is doing. We use BuzzSprout for our podcast hosting, and through them we've been able to connect with tons of resources and distributors. Following the link in the show notes lets BuzzSprout know we sent you, gets you a twenty dollar Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and help support our show, a win-win. Not only do they help you get started, but they also do small things to encourage you, such as awarding you badges as you hit various milestones. Join over a hundred thousand podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. We didn't discuss. Are you? Do you want to go I, first, or
0: completely up to you? I can go first if you want me to.
1: I guess since I'm babbling, I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> first, I have to put a disclaimer. Uh oh. So I'm. Co- it's not. I'm covering Jack Fiddler. And basically the Fiddler brother, are you familiar with them? A bit? No. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to say the word now. So he was a famous Wendigo hunter. And here's my disclaimer, though. Wendigo. There are, <laughs> I'm, somebody's going to be pissed off no matter how I pronounce this. Different Different nations, tribes, clans in the area even say it differently from each other. So I chose one so I'd be consistent, folks. So sorry to the people who are going to be pissed. But no matter what I do, one of you will think that I'm saying it wrong. So, (laughs) like, (laughs) ah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so in 1907, two Northwest Mounted police officers had headed up north in hopes of enforcing their legal standards on the indigenous people living there. The area had some of the last indigenous people to still be under their own law, not Canadian law. And that resistance was really pissing some people off and they were looking to change it. Stories had trickled down about murders occurring. And upon arriving, the men were told about Jack Fiddler, who was not only the chief of the sucker tribe, or it could be Sucker, but a respected shaman. It was felt he had influence over animals and that he protected his people from Wendigo and other evil spirits. About a year before Jack had killed his brother's daughter-in-law as the family had claimed she was becoming Wendigo. It appears she was strangled with a string is what I kept reading. And I'm like, that's not, that's not uh, humane. (laughs) Are we sure it was a string (laughs) kind of horrifying. Wendigo is a forest spirit said to be created when someone resorts to cannibalism among other reasons. There's, you know, everybody's got their reasons for why it happened It's humanoid with long limbs and deeply emaciated. It constantly hungers. That's really its thing is that it is always hungry. Various tribes believe in it, but its origins appear to be among the Algonquian tribes in northern Ontario. The legend has gone as far south as northern U.S. states, especially around the Great Lakes. So it it did infiltrate down into the tribes there as well. Basically, it exists in areas where dangerous snowstorms sucked people in, sometimes so severely that individuals had to resort to cannibalism to survive until travel was possible again. And it reminds me of of Russia and how cannibalism has seen very different there because they had a lot of situations where it was something that people ended up having to do. And to, down here in the lower U.S. <laughs> states, you know, it's it's not something that could ever be reasonable, <laughs> but if you got to eat, you got to eat. So (laughs) someone turning Wendigo had a long transformation process ahead of them that involved them being weak and sick, you would see the person just thinning out and getting weaker. And of course, we can look back and we can say we know a lot of diseases that work in this way, kind of wasting diseases, we might call them, where you can visibly see this happening to a person. It was believed that the person transforming should be killed before the process finished as the creature was hard to kill, but also because to save their soul, it had to be done before they became Wendigo. So all of this is important, just giving people a little background on it so they understand why people might have been murdering people for this. It should also be noted that much later, the term Wendigo fever would be used to describe people who suffered what are now called delusions that they were turning into Wendigo. So that was kind of a real thing as well. The officers arrested Jack and his brother Joseph for her murder. While in custody, Jack told them that he had killed at least 14 Wendigos or those transforming into the creature and that it was family members who came to him and asked for his help. Sometimes the besieged person themselves would ask for him to kill them before the spirit could completely take over. So he wasn't just going and randomly killing people. A lot of the time they were, one of the people they were the ones asking him to do this and if not it was their loved ones in investigating among the sucker people of deer lake and those in neighboring clans it was repeatedly stated that their family members had been transforming that they had been seriously ill and that they had asked for him to put them out of their misery before the transformation had been completed His people fully believed he had done them a service killing the afflicted kept everyone else safe is how it was seen This had been going on well before Jack came along. And in fact, his father was also a highly respected spiritual leader and was known as a Wendigo killer as well. One of Jack's brothers was said to have been killed when an expedition he was on ran into trouble and he resorted to cannibalism. It was thought he was becoming Wendigo and had to be killed. So this, this was long running. This was not a twisted serial killer. It's complicated. (laughs) Though his actual birth date is not known, it's estimated that Jack Fiddler was born around 1839. At that time, over trapping of animals for the sale of their furs had created an absence of animals. Hudson's Bay Company had moved into the area while trapping was good and actively transported the furs out of the area. They also provided trade to indigenous people in the area, but when the animals disappeared, so did Hudson's Bay Company, making it harder for those living in the area to get the trade items they needed. It made for many rough years. In fact, the fur trade wouldn't improve again until the 1860s is about where it seemed to. But as soon as the animal population bounced back, boop, so did Hudson's Bay Company. There they were again. It's thought Jack worked in the fur trade, possibly on trade ships for a time uh, on a river. He had five wives and 13 children, which was not a rare situation at the time. Because the death rates were so high among young ages, The this well, polygamy and whatnot was a thing they did. And it wasn't an easy life at all. Oh. Unfortunately for Jack and Joseph, the media at the time was already very anti-First Nations, and their practices were often demonized in the papers. I mean, just any practices, not even killing people because they thought they were turning into a monster. With public sentiment against them already for being Indigenous, the brother's story hitting the papers caused intense outrage and calls for his head, their heads. They they wanted these two dead. They wanted them to pay. People felt they were devil worshipers practicing black magic. Now they were murderers too. One Montreal Daily Witness headline read, devil worship among the Cree over this. They didn't even believe in the devil. So why would they be worshiping him? That's that's always what I get a kick out of that. On September 30th, 1907, Jack either escaped his imprisonment at Norway house or was allowed out for a walk. Stories differed on it. So I'm giving you both options. However, he got out. His body was found hanging from a tree. It was felt he had committed suicide. Interestingly, I found a couple forums where people claimed his body had massive wounds as of bear claws or something else, or you know, maybe a wendigo <laughs> raking his body. But I don't believe there's any truth to that story. I think he went out and he hanged himself, and that's it. Jack's death kept him from facing trial, but Joseph was still alive. He hadn't escaped. So <laughs> He, he did have to go forward with his trial. He had worked with his brother for some time in carrying out these deaths, but I couldn't find out if he'd been there every time and what his body count was for whatever reason. He's not as famous as his brother. So I don't think he was doing it all as consistently. It was argued that these were the beliefs of these people and that they had been unaware of Canadian law living under their own laws. It was also maintained that the people killed had all been suffering. So even if there was no such thing as Wendigo, These people were most likely actually very ill and they had been mercifully euthanized except not if they were strangled with a string. I was going to say except
0: for that piece of string. That just seems.
2: Uh, (laughs) It's a fiddle string, right?
1: (laughs) Right, right. Sure. (laughs) There were no outside doctors helping the indigenous people in that area and they were doing what they believed in. Both indigenous and white people who knew the brothers came to his defense. So Hudson's Bay Company was tried to defend him as well. It didn't matter, though. Joseph was found guilty of the murder. He was not allowed to have legal representation at all during the trial, and he did not speak English. So to be clear, (laughs) he was on trial, didn't know what they were saying, couldn't defend himself. They wouldn't know what he was saying. There was no translator, and it didn't matter because he didn't get to speak. So their law, that was so much more civil and humane Mm -hmm. and correct wasn't great. Hudson's Bay Company had sent a representative who worked extensively with indigenous people of the area and knew the brothers, but he was also not allowed to take the stand in Joseph's defense. Nobody was allowed to take the stand in Joseph's defense. (laughs) The magistrate, Commissioner Islesworth, was quoted as saying, what the law forbids no pagan belief can justify. Joseph's case was, was appealed, but he died in 1909 due to ill health, only three days before his appeal succeeded, he would have been set free. But these guys, when they were arrested, they were in probably their 70s or 80s, it's felt. These weren't young wow. spry men doing <laughs> this. So Jack's son Robert took over the tribe, but he had to sign a treaty that allowed Canadian law to rule over the area's people. His reign ended the familial line of Wendigo killers and brought the sucker people further into society's norms of the time. So I have to wonder if part of the reason they were prosecuted was to get the current leader out of the way, Mm -hmm. because that was Jack in order to allow them to legally take over the area. These were the holdouts. There's absolutely no reason they should have been able to be prosecuted under law. They weren't under that. They didn't (laughs) follow. Then again, again, That's still a fight happening in North America in various ways anyway. So when looking back, Wendigo lore is thought to be about many things. The most obvious is the fear of starvation and isolation. There's a lot of psychological reasons behind this and the horrors of cannibalism used to survive, but it was also about avoiding greed and selfishness. This is a big thread running through when you look on forums about this, that among indigenous folks and maintaining a relationship with nature. Wendigo is actually really complicated when it comes to nature, but animals were said to respond differently than people to them. And it, there's a, there's a whole thing if people want to look up the real story and not what we see in movies, which is always a bastardization and a twist because it's not being made by mm-hmm. say the Algonquian tribes. Uh, so be careful what you read, but in general, it was a cautionary tale passed down verbally to keep people safe in a harsh climate and an ultimately changing landscape in a very, in a time that was changing a ton for these folks. So, my sources for this were stories from the reservation on Tumblr, Wikipedia, The Siren Newspaper, Animalian, and something called Ozzy, OZY that had stories about it. Hmm. Oh,
2: wow. Did you pick that because you had a Canadian guest who grew up in mid northern Ontario on the show? I did. <laughs> very lovely like cuz that's that's it. kind of what life's like right now in Canada still you know <laughs> cannibalism um, you know murdering people with fiddle strings all the things yeah
1: you know it's still yeah. relevant <laughs> <laughs> every time it snows
2: <laughs> oh my god it, it actually it happens right cuz you know like shortage of toilet paper eggs all the oh things oh my gosh
1: <laughs> just imagine what what mythical creature we could create from that
2: <laughs> oh no. i don't want to know <laughs>
0: I don't maybe, want to. Maybe that's my job.
2: <laughs> potty go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Might be too on point.
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe.
0: That sounds like something you'd see advertised on Amazon. Potty go. <laughs> to train your toddler to use the toilet. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> Just
0: get the potty books.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Now, we're All pretty right. lucky. We did not resort to cannibalism during the last snowstorm, uh, nor nor even during the pandemic. So that was that was good.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm surprised about that. So, <laughs> 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 so I remember, the, I was on a mom's board back in the day, <laughs> and but uh, actually, most of them were from Ontario. But we had I had somebody on there from Edmonton and. Somebody, oh, I can't remember where she was from, but it's much farther up north, and that they have way too much fun with snowmobiles there. Oh, <laughs> where yeah. she lives, she lives in like a little town. But anyway, so we would always discuss, well, not always, but it would come up, what do what do Canadians stereotype, how do they stereotype Amer- Americans, and yeah, vice versa, and the number of people they said had asked them if they had igloos. <laughs> <laughs> is <astounding>. pretty common
2: <laughs> it's pretty common well i take my snow machine to, although i grew up in a town where you would get around in the winter like you go to some restaurant or whatever off the highway and it would be there'd be more snow machines than than oh, vehicles, yeah. like no,
1: that years. the one for and i mm-hmm. wish i could remember what where she lives but that's really what they have her daughter from a very young age because we were all together because our kids were due the same month So her daughter, my son's age, was driving around her own smaller snowmobile at a really young age. And I I was like, this is so cool. If I didn't hate (laughs) the cold, I would covet everything else about what you're doing in this little town that you live in. But
2: But you could get your license when you were 14, your snowmobile license when you were 14. Yeah. And you just, you couldn't go, you couldn't drive alongside roads, but you could cross them perpendicular. Okay. Um, you know, you know what I mean. So it was kind of like two years before you could drive. In the winter, you could get around on a vehicle. So
0: I, I'm just astounded. I'm like, wow, you could get a snowmobile license. Nobody I knew ever did that. Everybody just oh, yeah. you just, just got on them and drove. Because our rule was when you could start it by yourself, you were old enough to drive it by yourself.
2: Oh, that's true. Yeah. Because
0: it had the, the, the- pull start, yeah. Yes. Wow.
2: And that's uh, a good a good workout.
0: Yes, it is. <laughs>
2: You no know, wonder we had to resort to eating one another.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although I have read that the, um, the, the warming trend in general, dare I say global warming, um, that it's impacting winter tourism because yes. there's not as much snow. And the places that rely on the snowmobilers to come in, because there are places that open, they're open in yes. the summer, like the summer and the fall. Yes. Then they open up again for a spell in the winter and they're not getting enough snow to open. Well, I yeah. mean
1: our own ski resorts here are making yeah. making snow a lot of the time because it's just not enough.
2: Yeah, yeah. A lot of the ski hills have to do that. Uh, especially, I mean, I'm i in I'm in southern Ontario now and we got rain, so all the snow that I shoveled a few weeks ago is all gone.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it melts, it evaporates really fast here. Yeah. So are you ready to tell us yours?
2: Yeah, I thought uh, you'd ask the question about where I get my research. And, and one of the things I thought I would share would be the things that happen by accident, those happy, spooky accidents where you weren't planning on researching the story, but it landed in your lap and we'll stay in Canada. But I mean, I'm going to take you over to Alberta. I was uh, I was on because because of the books I write, I'm, I'm on a lot of you know great podcasts like yours and radio programs that want to talk about paranormal stuff. And I was a guest in March of 2015 on George Norrie's uh, Coast to Coast AM, which is, you know, simulcast all over the place. And it's, you know, from midnight till three in the morning. And I think I was talking about my book of haunted bookstores and libraries called Tomes of Terror. Prop. Holds up a prop. I was (laughs) talking about that book because it came out in 2014, you know, haunted bookstores and libraries. Come on. I haunt bookstores and libraries. Great place. And... Uh, So I was on the show. Uh, I'm I'm in my living room in my apartment. It's middle of the night, and I get scared so easily. And uh, towards the last half of the show, there's a live call-in. And one of the call-in folks shared a story. And that was one of the stories that ended up going into prop time again, onto (laughs) hospitals, which I had been researching at the time. So I, I already started to do some research haunted hospitals i wasn't quite done and lo and behold serendipitous moment is one of the guests shares a story that um ended up going into the haunted hospitals book and the story was this uh, person who worked at the pinoka uh, it it was called the pinoka hospital for the insane which is in mid northern alberta and they called in sharing a story they had never shared before. So they had worked there. They did a lot of overnight shifts. And there was a woman that we'll call Martha, who was sort of a lifelong resident of this. They She'd been there f- forever. There were some issues with Martha. They actually had meetings. They believe she may have been possessed. And she would get violent and angry and it would take multiple people to hold her down and constantly they were constantly having to inject her to just calm her down and 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 put her out because she was going to hurt herself she was going to hurt other people other things that had happened with martha were she would complain that her room was so cold it was it was it was like a meat locker when you went in there and then they would you know try and get there's nothing wrong with the radiator nothing was you know broken They'd move her to another room, and about an hour after they moved her to another room, the room she had been in was perfectly warm again, and the room she moved into was ice cold again. So weird things had happened. They'd even brought in priests trying to figure out what they could do uh, with Martha. And then one night, this uh, person was working the shifts where they they had to go and do the rounds, and they walked into um, Martha's room. Because they heard voices. Because every once in a while you would hear Martha as if she was having a conversation with someone and you'd walk into the room and there was no one there. So they hear voices, they go into the room, and even though there were voices just a second before they opened the door, they walked into the door and there's Martha sleeping, except she's not just sleeping. She is um, sleep standing, but she's not just sleep standing normally. She's sleep standing horizontally over top of the bed, about two feet above the bed with her feet up against the wall, facing out into the room, hair hanging down. So gravity's obviously still working there, hanging down over her face, completely asleep, not responding to anything. They walk into the room, see, see her standing like that up against the wall and then slowly back out the door, go back into the television room Sit down, can't figure out what to say because they can't explain what they saw, and never breathed a word about this at all until that show in March of 2015, you know, live radio decided to share the story. So this freaked me out. This chilled me. I, I remember I still remember sitting there, just chilled, and I'm making notes. And so when, when we got towards the end of the show and we were off the air, I was talking to the producer and I said, Hey can you reach out to this guest? Uh, it, would it be okay if I get their contact information? Cause I'd love to talk to them because I'm doing this book haunted hospitals about uh, they did. They did. So they put me in contact with this person. This person was willing to talk to me. And about two and a half weeks later, we had a call. We uh, really long call. Um, and this person shared with me two, two really interesting things. They felt so relieved that they had finally shared this story. Second, they had a friend who'd worked at the at the same place and knew them and knew Martha, but uh, and and was interested in the paranormal because they couldn't explain the weirdness that surrounded her. This friend decided to meet them uh, at a Tim Hortons. That's a Canadian Dunkin' oh, Donuts. Yeah. Train, very you know <laughs> very Canadian. I got to go to Timmy's, eh?
0: <clears throat> they Tim met at Tim Hortons. Yes. <laughs>
2: where the friend said I recognized your voice on the radio program I was listening and I'm so glad you shared it because I had a very similar ins- uh, instance happen to me and they had said that um, around the same time and this, this is like goes back more than a decade or so around the same time they were working uh, a different night shift and went in to check on on Martha and found a very similar situation they heard voices in the room they walked into the room when they walked into the room Martha was sleep standing but this time she was asleep standing vertically and she was about a foot and a half off of the floor, just standing straight up her eyes, even though she was asleep, her eyes were open. He was looking straight at the person in the door and it said, and I never told anyone until now, because I was so scared that I was the only one that saw something so outrageously unexplainable. And so that was an example of a really amazing serendipitous moment of the, you know, those two you know, that that one thing happening and two different people feeling the relief of being able to share the story. Uh, speaking of serendipity, one of the other sort of tie-ins to this is I was in the, the lobby at the Antlers uh, in Colorado Springs for superstars writing seminars. And it, this kicked off an annual tradition now of the haunted parlor where we share ghost stories, but it was just late night the bar had closed we are all sitting around talking and we were all just sitting in the in this sort of like long, long uh, L-shaped couch and a bunch of armchairs in in the corner of the lobby sharing some stories and as i was sharing some of these stories one of the one of the other authors was also an artist and had sketched this really eerie sketch of martha on the wall and ironically from that conversation uh, a a book a, a, an anthology of haunted collectible items called Cursed Collectibles was born. <laughs> so like this one phone call in 2015 has led to some great stories, some people uh, feeling, you know, really good about relieving themselves of this burden of, of of not having told anyone. And then of course, a whole bunch of really cool horror authors and I, or authors who wanted to write ghost stories and I uh, had got to participate in this anthology. So serendipity. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I can just imagine when it came time to go check the rooms. Everybody's like, "I'm not checking Martha's." Yeah, <laughs> got that losing straw. I'm yeah, like, it's just like constantly.
2: Like, no, I got Martha's room again.
1: The new person. It was
2: always yeah. the
0: new guy. <laughs> I can't wait until this episode airs because my oldest daughter listens to it, and she is um, a social worker at a state psych hospital.
2: Oh, okay.
0: So in Kansas, but I'm like, well. So thing one, when you're listening to this, if you have any stories, you need to be coughing them up. I mean, she has plenty of stories, don't get me wrong. But so far about ghosts, no, none of them have been haunted. Because when you first started talking about Martha, I'm like going, yep, yep, this all tracks for being in a mental facility. Right, yeah. But then the hovering above the bed, no, that's that's
2: that's not a symptom of something that we know from you know, scientific study and medical research.
0: So I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying to know if Martha is still with us or if Martha's gone.
2: I believe Martha had passed on. Uh, Martha had passed on. And that was one of the reasons why the person felt, you know, they could share right. the story. <laughs> but Martha had no family. It was just Martha on her own. And, and so again, it, that's not Martha's real name. Uh, right. you know, for obvious reasons. <laughs>
0: yeah. I want to know fair. Martha's story. yeah true
2: yeah that is intriguing yeah
1: before she ended up there which it probably wouldn't even exist for anybody if she didn't have anybody in her life Mm -hmm. but
0: yeah yeah all right
1: it is just checking on her and she's floating above the ground and her eyes are Mm -hmm. wide open but she's asleep like just a combination of freaky
0: I bet they started knocking before they went in. <laughs> <Pounding> out,
2: <laughs> out, the just, really loud. Wake Martha, Martha up. up. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear a thump.
1: Oh. <laughs> okay, we can go in now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, sounds like Martha's awake. We could go in. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my story is has the has the Northeast connection. It has a lot of mayhem and a ghost. All right you got to be patient, though, to get to the ghost. So I'm going to take a flying leap and assume that most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Dewey Decimal System. I don't know.
1: Occasionally.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I was just all morning. I was just thinking <laughs> all about it. And I was hoping someone would raise that.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, we all did the research papers in high school. And, and you know, you had to learn where to look for what books. And it, so... We all know what it is. So Melville Dewey's name came up in a conversation and I was shocked <laughs> to learn what a repellent human being he was. Uh. I mean, you know, he did all this great stuff, but he was such a pain in the ass. So his name, his full name was Melville Lewis Kossuth, I think, Dewey. He was born December 10th, 1851 in Adams Center, New York. So, yes, I always like to get the Adirondacks in whenever I can. I can't help myself. So he was the youngest of five children. And from a young age, I mean, like as a child, he was determined to reform education for the masses, which is. a (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I wanted the Barbie camper. That was my as a young child. (laughs) I wasn't reforming anything. So he got his bachelor's and master's degrees uh, from Amherst College in Massachusetts. While he was a student, he founded the Library Bureau, which sounds great, but it's actually a business that provides standardized index cards and filing cabinets, what we would call card catalogs, to libraries. So it's kind of interesting that his organizational methods work best with the equipment that his company just happens to manufacture. Mm -hmm. What a shocker. That's never happened before. (laughs) (laughs) As a young man, this I found really hilarious. As a young man, he advocated for spelling reform. And I'm like, have you not studied the history of the English language? You can't. You just can't. He changed his name from uh, Melville was spelled with two L's and an E on the end. It is He had it legally changed to M-E-L-V-I-L. And he briefly changed his last name to Dewey, D-U-I. Oh. So he wanted to get rid of all excess letters. <laughs> Um, extraneous letters just chapped his butt. And it's really funny because there was a restaurant in Lake Placid. I think it's Lake Placid where the menu for years, decades, the menu was written according to these rules. So all the extraneous letters were (laughs) taken out. Yeah. I found a menu page. There was something I was like, I can't figure out what what this is supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. That's so easy for people. Yeah. So other professional accomplishments include chief librarian at Columbia University, director of the New York State Library, establishing a program of traveling libraries, which is a phenomenal thing, executive officer of the University of the State of New York, and he was eventually a member of the American Library Association's Hall of Fame. And they even named a medal after him, one of their highest awards. But we're going to circle back around to that later. So in 1895, Dewey and his wife, Annie, founded the Lake Placid Club, which was a social recreation club. And uh, in uh, the Lake Placid Club, no kidding. It was in Lake Placid, New York. And he and his son, Godfrey, were instrumental in bringing the 1932 Winter Olympics to Lake Placid. (laughs) Fun fact. In 1926, he opened another branch of the club in Florida called the Lake Placid Club Lodge, spelled L O J. Um, but then the Great Depression happened and the lodge closed and it was eventually torn down. There is a Lake Placid in Florida. Betty White doesn't live there, nor does a giant alligator. <laughs> Damn it. Right? Lame. So he was best known for the development of the Dewey Decimal System, which allowed libraries to have a standardized method of organizing information, which in in and of itself is a wonderful thing. He helped create best practices for library loss management, circulation, and data retention. And I I wrote that sentence and then wrote, well, that's just leaving everybody breathless (laughs) with excitement
1: at this point. I'm just trying to figure out if the meaning to get rid of extraneous letters is some sort of form of OCD, or I have no idea. <laughs> My brain still trying to wrap itself around that.
0: <laughs> so uh, here's a d- direct quote because he's such a swell guy from Wikipedia. For decades, Dewey refused to stop his unwelcome hugging, unwelcome touching, and certainly unwelcome kissing with female subordinates and others, according to biographer Wayne A. Weigand. When he opened the school of library economy at Columbia college, he required a photo from each app female applicant, not every applicant, every female applicant, because he said you cannot polish a pumpkin. <laughs> okay. Now I have heard a similar saying it wasn't that, and it didn't, it wasn't said in, I've always heard you can't polish a turd. Well, yeah, but yeah, you can't you cannot Well, he was
2: he was highbrow.
0: But that's oh, yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> um in in 1905, he was asked to leave the American Library Association, which he helped to found, because of complaints about his inappropriate advances on four female librarians during a 10-day trip to Alaska. Okay. <laughs> this was all on one trip. Uh, He stepped down quietly in return for the association, keeping quiet about why he was leaving. So in um, 1929, he was sued by a former employee for attempting, attempting to caress and kiss her in public. He said he was just unconventional. There's always a word (laughs) for it, isn't there? He said, here, how's this for twisted logic? Pure women would understand my ways. Pure. <laughs> so if you were pure, you didn't mind him groping you? I can't.
2: Yes. Yeah. Pure spelled P-U-R. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, precisely. Um, so beyond the way he's treating women, he was also extremely prejudiced against Blacks and Jews, making sure they weren't able to become members of his Lake Placid club. And he went so far as to buy the land next to the club so that no Jews could buy it. (laughs) I mean, this is right out of Auntie Mame. Yeah. You know, when she buys the land and opens the home for unwed mothers, (laughs) which I love. Um, So in June of 2019, it took until 2019, the uh, American Library Association voted to replace the Melville Dewey Medal with the ALA Medal of Excellence, the decision was unanimous with no debate. was the ALA stand for? American Library Association. Oh. that he helped found. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're like we don't even want to acknowledge he existed, even though he helped found it. So, and so just, just to show you how far his biases went, the do the actual Dewey Decimal System itself reflects all of this. For example, the number 326 represents slavery. So, following his lead, everything that had to do with any sort of black history or creativity was filed under slavery. Uh, black poetry, 326. Ew. Oh. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, right? You're like, it's just boggling. Anything having to do with LGBTQ plus issues was filed under abnormal psychology or medical disorders.
2: Oh. And that's because we didn't really know what the numbers meant.
0: Uh, right. One hopes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, women's work is separate from jobs. Oh. Wow.
2: Kitchen, right?
0: Yeah. 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 So here's here's a great one, though the section on religion starts at 200. So 200 to 289 are given over to Christianity, leaving 10 digits, (laughs) 290 to 299 for the world's other 4,000 or so religions.
2: Yeah, whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and it's not adaptable for instance. So it's a very static system. There's no way to classify graphic novels. Oh, um, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, right? Uh, so, because the numbers were all already set. Yes. And one of the strongest reasons they have for keeping the Dewey Decimal System in schools instead of switching to the Library of Congress system is because, well, kids' parents are familiar with the Dewey Decimal System. No, but they're, they're parents, not. Right? anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, nobody knows anything about it. I mean, I'm sure librarians do. But yeah, I'm like, if you ask... A random sampling of parents—they're going to go what?
2: Yeah, I, I remember that it was a thing.
0: <laughs> you know it exists as soon as you hear it. You know, yeah, that's the library number thing. But right, but if you're not actively involved yeah. with
1: it, you don't. I don't remember. Wow. <laughs> just, yeah, I just look for the sign and it says
0: memoirs or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So I promised a ghost, and a ghost you shall have. Oh. So it's rumored that Dewey's first wife, Annie Godfrey Dewey, haunted the halls of the original Lake Placid Club after she died in 1922. And it did, I think it was interesting that the articles made a note that her death was natural, that there was no suspicion around her death. They had to include that.
2: <laughs> Nothing to see here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But she, uh, staff recounted run-ins with her in the halls and her ghost was reportedly often seen sitting in a rocking chair in the library. Since she was in her seventies when she dies, when she died, it seems the old lady seen floating in the hallway is her, is Annie. She's the Ghostbusters ghost. Yes. Her last words spoken to her nurse were to ask that a poem she had written, which was still sitting in the typewriter unfinished, be given to her husband, Melville, who she was writing it for. Oh, okay. And she had to have known what kind of a person he was. He was losing jobs because of- Was that the poem
2: that began, uh, How Do uh, You Discuss Me, Let Me Count Thy Ways? uh, It
0: should have. (laughs) So now I'm like, well, next time I'm in Lake Placid, I'm going to have to do a little more research. Wow. I didn't even know Lake Placid existed until that movie came out.
2: This was at the Lodge, right? The L.O.G. Lodge? In, in no, that
0: Florida? was the one in Florida.
2: Okay. This is the
0: one in New York.
2: Oh, this is the one in New York State. Okay. Yes. All right. So closer then for me.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I would race you to Lake Placid, but you would obviously get there much before I would.
2: A little bit, yeah. <laughs> On my snow machine.
0: <laughs> I haven't ridden a snowmobile in
1: decades. I've never ridden a snowmobile, even though my grandparents in the Oregon mountains there were also snowmobile trails and stuff. Yeah. So they had they had them, but I never got to ride. Where <laughs> we learn
2: wind chill factor, Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> burn. Fr- burn frostbite on your nose and stuff,
0: mm-hmm. and attaching the sleds. Behind the snowmobile, so yeah. I wouldn't prefer a sandmobile somewhere tropical,
2: please. Sandmobile, yeah, <laughs> that'd
1: be great. Mm. <laughs> That's just an ATV. <laughs> I was going to say, I think
0: those are called dune buggies. Dune
1: oh, buggies, I would love yeah. a dune buggy.
0: <laughs> I really would.
2: No, I, we would like you use, uh, ice fishing on those things, and you attach the sled, and you would have all your augers. So you could cut through the ice, and all the equipment and everything. It was, it was just good, t- good times, good times.
0: I don't so under- I, I don't understand ice fishing though. It's come up before. I don't
2: get just on top of the ice, and you cut a hole, and then. But the thing is, is you could put little sticks with the fishing line, so you can go sit around the fire and stay warm. And then, when you see the stick go, you run and you pull it. (laughs) I guess, right? Unlike a boat, you can't run on a little, you know, six foot boat.
0: (laughs) Yes, but the wind chill when you're in the boat is generally not quite so cold.
2: No, that's true. That's true. (laughs) Preferences, preferences.
1: (laughs) It doesn't. You got to have the little ice shack, and and do all that fun stuff. It's just it's just came later. camping during the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do you put the fire, and why doesn't it melt through the ice?
2: The the ice is like eight feet thick in some spots, right? And yeah, sometimes yeah. you would you would be right the you know, the fire would be on 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 land, just and you'd be uh-huh. fishing just offshore oh, or right. just yeah.
0: See, when we went ice skating, it was always on a frozen over pond. So if there was like a hillet sticking out of the pond that was where the fire was. There was a big yeah. uh, tire and the fire was built inside of that, or it was on the edge of the pond. Right. I feel like mm-hmm. I miss out on a lot of winter fun. Well, oh, no. <laughs> when you're rural, you make fun where you can. That's I
1: right. was,
0: I was farm rural. Yeah. And we did. And
1: that was in Oregon. I wasn't, and that was in Oregon and it doesn't, we don't get that cold in Oregon. <laughs> it's it's just We do not except up in the mountains. So, yeah, aside from sledding and building ice forts and throwing snowballs and mm-hmm. accidentally having ice in the middle of one of them that sliced open a friend, <laughs>
0: friend accidentally, accidentally. No, actually, I didn't. I, I didn't
1: realize because <laughs> the fort had started melting and it had uh, dripped. It was is it was a whole thing. <laughs> it was it had dripped just right onto some of the snowballs. See, and then they turned uh, icy because it got cold because it was later in the day. Because we prepared. We built that fort and then we prepared our arsenal of course. and there was another fort over here and they had their arsenal, but their snowballs were not where the water dripped. <laughs> I did not try and kill anybody that day.
0: <laughs> I like that you added that day.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we did, I did have forest fun though. Just, I've never liked the cold much. It's <laughs> no. not my thing. My bones don't like it. No. My husband's like, we should go to Alaska. And I'm all, Ugh. Actually, I wouldn't mind visiting Alaska. I'm sure it's lovely, but (laughs) just could we go in the summer? Black fly
2: season, or then then it's mosquito and black fly, or it's cold, right?
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of lucky in Colorado because we don't have a lot of bugs. That's funny. I had that talk with somebody yesterday who just moved here from California and they lived in the Sonoran Desert, though. And they were like, there are more bugs here than where I came from. And I was like, what?
0: (laughs) Wait, tell me
1: more. And because in the desert, there were even fewer bugs because we don't have a lot of the bugs that are other places. It was an interesting conversation. I thought we were like at the lowest scale of bug. (laughs) We're
0: not. I always tell people we have four mosquitoes in the whole state and we share them.
2: Oh, wow. (laughs) There's four in my bedroom every night usually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or way more than four have found me. Yes. Random fact. Febreze is supposed to help deter mosquitoes. Really? I haven't tested it yet. I just learned that yesterday too.
2: <laughs> you you put yeah when you put them in the dryer, the mosquitoes die, right?
1: That's right. Also, okay. dryer sheets.
2: <laughs> it must so be the Febreze.
0: <laughs> no, it's Avon Skin So Soft.
1: That's a I've heard that one too. And Victoria's Secret has released two sets of like I guess it's like what are they? They have names for sets, and two of them have a natural mosquito deterrence built in. And I was like, so you don't get bit in certain parts of your body, but everywhere else
0: is fair game. Because you know that is the first thing you pack to go camping. Is your lingerie? Is that's right. Oh, well,
2: it's first thing. Yeah, my lingerie is the first thing I put in my.
1: You know, <laughs> and the last thing to get before
2: back. the sleeping bag, before anything else.
1: Yeah. Before no, the they
2: bring me, I, I'm the I'm the deterrent because all the mosquitoes come towards me, and everyone else is happy. That's that usually is also me. Yeah. yeah.
0: It was a whole thing. Okay, then I would go for a walk in the woods with either of you. Well, yeah. 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 I get
1: eaten alive. And everybody, my husband's got one bite. (laughs) Like his arm.
2: Blood from behind my ears. It's just like.
1: (laughs) What happened to you? Well, swollen welt.
2: (laughs) Pretty much. Just,
1: yes. So, yay for outdoors fun, I guess. (laughs) You take what you can get because I do like the outdoors. So it's all good. (laughs) I like the outdoors when it's not freezing cold. Yeah. I want to be inside. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. And for the fun story about the creepy lady, really do dig that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) Creepy, creepy woman. And it's though kind of sad because she was all alone. So if you had yeah. to be possessed, I guess maybe you want your family to try and get you exercised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that would be beneficial. Considering all the stories of the real life exorcisms gone wrong. And mm-hmm. oh, yeah. ones are always <laughs> terrible, but yes, thank you for coming on and thank you everybody for listening and check out Mark's books. And that's something else is that. Is it it's Kobo? You've right? Is it yeah? I,
2: I helped create the self-publishing platform Kobo Writing Life. Yes.
1: Yes, So my
2: baby. Yeah.
1: March books are available <laughs> all over the place. You don't have to go through Amazon if you don't like Amazon.
2: Go to all the retailers, all the retailers. Libraries, go to libraries, haunted libraries, non-haunted libraries.
1: <laughs> Take your pick. Yeah, I would think I feel like libraries, there's a lot of places where there's a ton of people, and that's because I've always kind of had this thing that hauntings are that energy that's left over, and the more people went through a place, the more likely it is to be haunted. So, a hospital and a library, and all of that good stuff. My personal experiences, movie theaters, see a ton of people in and out. Think about that's true, thousands of people at one time, depending upon how big that theater is, and they're coming in what, five shifts a day, four shifts a day.
2: And experiencing high emotion, usually, right? Absolutely. Fear and, and sadness and happiness and laughter, like all of these things, which can leave an impression in a place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hard agree because, And that's why I think those sorts of places, obviously a hospital is going to have all that. Anywhere where you're sure. enjoying media where it makes you experience emotions, theater mm-hmm. library. So yeah, yeah good stuff. <laughs> all right guys thank you for listening and we will talk
0: to you next week bye Bye. thank you for listening to mysteries monsters and mayhem find us on facebook and instagram or at our website mysteriesmonstersmayhem.com. please like rate and review follow and share wherever your favorite podcasts are downloaded thank
1: you for listening and supporting our podcast we'll be back next week with more shenanigans